0: The container orchestration wars ended in 2016, with Kubernetes being the most popular open-source tool for deploying and managing infrastructure. Since that time, most large enterprises have been implementing a, quote, platform strategy based around Kubernetes. A platform strategy is a plan for creating a consistent experience for software engineers working throughout an enterprise. At most companies, a software engineer should be thinking about business logic, whether that logic is related to banking, insurance, oil and gas, or e-commerce. But today, engineers at many enterprises need to think about continuous delivery, application deployment, security policy management, and other deeply technical problems that have nothing to do with the business that they are actually working at. Kubernetes is a foundational open-source building block that allows enterprises to base the rest of their infrastructure decisions around. Kubernetes has made it much more viable for enterprises to pursue a platform strategy. With widespread adoption of Kubernetes, there's a business opportunity for companies that can offer other platform solutions that build on top of Kubernetes. A service mesh is one such tool. A service mesh provides networking and security features for all the services in an organization. The service mesh category is a large business opportunity because it sits on the critical path of every network request that goes through an enterprise. Service Mesh is a potential insertion point for lots of other products, including logging agents, distributed tracing, network packet scanning, security policy management, and A-B testing. The potential for business expansion from the basic idea of a Service Mesh is why so many businesses are entering the Service Mesh category today, from cloud providers to API gateways. There's lots of potential for upsells and cross-sells and enterprise sales expansion in the service mesh category. Buoyant was one of the first companies to work on a service mesh tool with the Linkerd open source project that was based on the experience from Twitter. William Morgan is the CEO of Buoyant, and he has been on the show several times before for some great discussions of modern application development and service proxying, service mesh. William returns to the show to discuss the competitive dynamics of the service mesh market. A quick announcement. We are hiring a content writer and a operations lead for Software Engineering Daily. If you are interested in either of these roles and you like Software Engineering Daily, send me an email, jeff at com. Both of these roles are part-time positions working closely with myself and Erica So if you like the idea of that, then you can send me an email. I'd love to hear from you. If you want to extract value from your data, it can be difficult, especially for non-technical, non-analyst users. As software builders, you have this unique opportunity to unlock the value of your data to users through your product or your service. Jaspersoft offers embeddable reports, dashboards, and data visualizations that developers love. Give your users intuitive access to data in the ideal place for them to take action, within your application. To check out a sample application with embedded analytics, go to softwareengineeringdaily.com jaspersoft. You can find out how easy it is to embed reporting and analytics into your application. JasperSoft is great for admin dashboards or for helping your customers make data-driven decisions within your product, because it's not just your company that wants analytics, it's also your customers. In a recent episode of Software Engineering Daily with TIBCO, we talked about visualizing data inside apps based on modern front-end libraries like React, Angular, and Vue.js. If you want to check out that episode... It's available on softwareengineeringdaily.com. You can also check out JasperSoft for yourself by going to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash JasperSoft and finding out about embedded analytics. Thanks to TIBCO for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. William Morgan, welcome back to Software Engineering Daily.
1: Thanks, Jeff. It's great to be back.
0: I think this is your fourth or fifth appearance you're closing in on the other highly numbered people over the last three years we've talked several times about service proxies and service mesh and for many companies the service mesh has gone from a curiosity to something that they're actively experimenting with and at a growing number of companies service mesh is actually playing a significant role in their infrastructure. There are people who have actually deployed some kind of service mesh and are really getting a lot of value out of it. For the companies that are beginning to experiment with it, beginning to roll it out, as they try to roll out a service mesh and make use of it, what are the biggest barriers to leveraging a service mesh and making it into something useful?
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. So you're right that it is happening, and it's happening in a lot of companies. And I think we've been privileged in the Linkerd world to have been exposed to it for the past couple of years. And so Linkerd, you know, was the very first service mesh. And as part of that, we've been in production in various companies for you know over three years. So we've seen. We tend to take a pretty hands on. Approach when people are adopting it, so we've seen what happens, and there's a bunch of challenges, honestly. So I, you know, I think I even gave a KubeCon talk like two years ago that was titled uh, "How to Get a Service Mesh into Production Without Getting Fired," right? Because there's a lot of ways for it to go wrong. I think one of the challenges is just like any piece of technology that's relatively new, when you add it into an existing system. Whenever something goes wrong in that system, you know, that's kind of the first, the service mesh is the first thing that anyone will blame. right? It's like, oh, I just, you know, something's not working now. Well, what did we just change? Oh, well, you know, William added the service mesh three weeks ago. So this is probably, you know, Linkerd's fault. And so as a result of that, we've actually built a lot of features into Linkerd. Around introspection and debuggability of the mesh itself because we need to, to, to give our adopters the, the ability to kind of, you know, have this kind of slightly defensive posture where they can say, oh, look, I actually understand what's happening here. I understand all the components and it's not the service mesh. It's actually, you know, the code over here has a bug or something like that. So that's one challenge to adopting it. It's just that it's new technology and you get blowback when things go wrong. I think another challenge which is a little more specific to the service mesh itself is that the space is very confusing. <laughs> right now there's a lot of different projects. There's a lot of information and misinformation that's out there. And so you get into these situations where people don't even know what the set of projects are or whether this is the most appropriate one or what the state of this thing is. Is it ready for production? Is it new? Is it you know, somewhere in between? So. There, I think the challenge is navigating that landscape and understanding what the state of these projects are today and where they're going to be in 6 to 12 months from now or, you know, 4 to 5 years from now.
0: And from talking to you, I I have trouble understanding to what degree you think the choice of service mesh even matters. Like, there's some set of functionality that you need out of a service mesh. Why does it matter which... Service mesh we choose?
1: Yeah. So that's a good question. And it is complicated by the fact that, you know, this landscape is so complex. And there are projects like to pick on network service mesh for a minute. There are projects like network service mesh, which are great projects, but that are not anything like the other projects calling themselves service meshes and that operate on a totally different part of the stack. But I think it matters because these projects have very different surface areas so I'm obviously the most familiar with, with Linkerd and Linkerd takes this very particular approach where we are quite Kubernetes centric and our goal is to make it so that when you run linkerd it imposes the smallest possible operational burden on top of kubernetes itself so you've already adopted kubernetes it's a huge surface surface area it's like a bunch of operational complexity that you've just kind of you know taken in when you add linkerd it shouldn't double that it shouldn't even add like you know 5% more burden it should be as small as possible that strategy has a bunch of implications for the the sorts of features that we want Linkerd to have, the sorts of features we don't want it to have. But it's not always the most appropriate service mesh. Of course, I'd like to say Linkerd is the best for any possible use case, but, you know, I I guess there's too much engineer in me to really be able to say statements like that. There are plenty of reasons why Linkerd wouldn't be the right choice for you, especially if you were not adopting like a really Kubernetes-centric kind of lifestyle so I think understanding what the benefits and strengths of each of these projects is and where they will, will give you a, a sense of which one suits your particular use case, you know, uh, the best. And they have, a lot of them have very simil- similar value props, right? So you're getting kind of the same, at least at the broad, you know, from a broad view, you're, you're getting reliability features and security features and, and observability features, but the details end up being quite different between different projects.
0: Did you say Kubernetes-centric lifestyle? Yeah, that's right. (laughs) That's a good one.
1: It's not just a container orchestrator, it's a lifestyle. So,
0: the the surface area that this thing should occupy, that it should, like, the service mesh or the service proxy construct, it seems like you think it should be pretty small. It should just be this thing that's very easy to add to your infrastructure But then, of course, as a company, that raises the question, if all I'm providing is this tiny little thing that gets inserted into the infrastructure,
1: where is the money being made? Yeah, well, so that's also a good question. I guess I'd say it's not so much that the service mesh is tiny from like a line of code standard, although certainly we try and minimize that. It's more from the operational standpoint, and you can have things that are you know quite complex under the hood but that are easy to operate although it takes a lot of work to get there. So yeah, I wear I wear two hats. I think we talked about this last time. I wear the the LinkerD hat where I'm happy to be, you know, a maintainer at least nominally, and I wear the buoyant hat and you know where I'm the CEO and, and we're a startup and obviously we're, we're venture backed and you know there has to be some kind of strategy presumably around, you know, buoyant making money and and even from the LinkerD perspective. Right. The reality of open source is that you want to have a really healthy kind of economic engine behind the project that continues to invest in it. Right, Very few people are doing open source nights and weekends these days. Right, these, There are companies behind these projects. And if you care about the sustainability of the project, then you want there to be a healthy ecosystem of, of companies uh, that are supporting it and nourishing it. So for us, we finally have an answer to this question that I have had to dance around for the past couple of years in that we have... Just a few days ago, we've uh, launched our our SaaS offering, at least to private beta. It's called Dive, D-I-V-E co. And if you go to the website today, you will see a wait list to sign up for Dive. And the way we've partitioned this, and, and I'm, I'm really happy with the way this worked out, because I think it's going to be really good for Linkerd as well as uh, obviously for Boyant and, and for all of our adopters and users, is that Linkerd is extremely good at solving basically computer problems right distributed systems problems how do my how do i have my services talk to each other in a way that's secure and reliable and that i can make sense of as an as an operator and dive solves a related but very different class of problem which is the problems of people and process so how do we as human beings on a team of engineers you know and some of us are in platform roles some of us are in developer or service owner roles how do we work together to accomplish a shared purpose right which is deploying code to production over and over again so we can iterate on the feature set in a way that is reliable and safe and those are both parts of the you know the same puzzle we need to have the computers behaving as well as the people behaving but they're two very different domains
0: take me through the adoption of Linkerd as the service mesh service proxy that we all know and love, through the adoption of Dive. What is that user journey or customer journey?
1: Yeah. So in both cases, you know the the sorts of problems that we want to solve are problems that SREs and and platform owners have, right? And these are folks who are adopting, in our case, are adopting Kubernetes. They're building this internal platform for the rest of their team. They're picking a CI C D system. They're picking a, a you know a, a code repo. They're picking Kubernetes. They're building up, you know, basically all the little bits and pieces of this internal platform. And they're thrust into this like complicated situation because what all of the technologies ultimately enable is building microservices. Right? It's not super cool to talk about microservices. This week, it was very cool several weeks ago, and it'll be cool in the future, but right now it's not cool. But that's really what, you know, if you look at what Kubernetes and and Docker and the service mesh all enable, it's all making it really easy to run a whole lot of services, right? And you can agree or disagree whether that's a, a good thing. I wrote a very long article about this recently on Service Mesh.io. I wrote my Meshafesto, which is like—did
0: you really? <laughs> yeah. I missed
1: this. Yeah. Well, it just came out last week. I like scrambled to get it out before KubeCon, but I tried to lay out everything. Okay, I'm gonna back away from this tangent in a minute. I promise. But I tried to lay out everything that I knew about the service mesh, including not just what it is and and how it works, but why it makes sense and what else has changed in the world to make it like a plausible thing. So you can get a lot more Wait, of Wait, why don't theories. we go there right now? Like, let's, okay. let's come back to yeah. Dive. Okay.
0: Give okay. me the Meshifesto compressed <laughs> yeah. SE Daily audio version. Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah. So, you know, the service mesh works by adding a whole lot of proxies everywhere, right? And it's nice. Doing that is really nice in in the sense that it turns out that's a great way to add functionality to a system without having to change the code, right? Turns out it's bad in the sense that we're running a whole lot of proxies, right? And there's an operational burden to doing that. But what's made this a feasible approach is basically the adoption of containers and Kubernetes, where now it doesn't matter what language the services are written in. I can just wrap everything up in a container. And the deploy time burden of deploying like thousands or tens of tens of thousands of user-space proxies next to every application is handled for us by Kubernetes, right? And that's that's not how things were five years ago or 10 years ago, you know, imagine doing this with puppet scripts or whatever, which is like where I, you know, how I grew up, it would have been, it would have been a non-starter, right? And so I think what Kubernetes and Docker and the service mesh enable is this adoption of microservices. And and I relate this to my experience at Twitter because I was there, you know, t- 2010 to circa 2015 when Twitter went through this giant transformation from monolith to microservices and the amount of time and energy that Twitter had to spend on that transformation was staggering. It was a lot of engineers and a lot of time and it worked at the end, which is amazing, right? Especially since so few things worked at Twitter at that point in time. But you can contrast that, it, you know, Twitter had to do that because the monolith was not scaling anymore. It took a lot of time and energy. But you can contrast that with startups today, where they, out of the gate, they're running 50 microservices, and there's like five engineers. And that's a feasible thing for them to do. You might or might, you may or may not agree that's the right thing to do, but it's feasible for them to operate that. And they're doing those, it. Right, and they're doing it either <laughs> way. There was a really cool tweet from the Monzo folks recently. Monzo's a startup bank in the UK, where they showed off their topology of 1,500 services, yes. And, you know, the internet, like, lost their minds about why would you ever do this. To me, I was like, this is, you know, it's a little extreme, but it's not that crazy. And they have 150 engineers. That's a 10 to 1 microservice to engineer ratio. It's possible, whether or not you think it's a good idea, it is made possible by things like, like uh, containers and container orchestrators. And Linkerd. And Linkerd. Well, in their case, not Linkerd, but, you I know, thought
0: Monzo used Linkerd. In the
1: olden days, they did. Yeah. That was back when we were on the JVM. Yeah, but as they scale, the JVM hits these performance limits, and you know, which is why we wrote rewrote Linkerd off of the JVM. So that's all to say the reason why the service mesh makes sense today is because you have these tools like Kubernetes that allow you to co-deploy a whole lot of user space proxies in a way that's not totally insane, and you have mechanisms for doing the IP tables wiring so that all traffic goes through there. So it unlocks the abilities for these sidecar-based kind of design patterns. And at the same time, because you have so many microservices being built, because, you know, again, they're being unlocked by containers and container orchestrators, the need for the service mesh is also really increasing, right? Because you have all these developer teams, and you've done all this great work to unblock them, so they're doing deploys on their own schedule, like you've got service owner teams, and they deploy their services whenever they need. And so you've got all these microservices, but now at the platform level, there's a lot of functionality that you need that you don't really want to incur a dependency on the developers for so if you want to adopt tls throughout your entire application you know your choices are well i can ask every developer team and you might have hundreds of those to add tls to their application well that's going to be painful you're going to fight with the product manager right or we can just do it with the service mesh. we can add Linkerd, d and Linkerd d will do tls mutual tls for us you know in fact we do it out you know we turn it on by default so All of those factors are not only enabling the service mesh, making it like a feasible approach, but they're also driving the need for it.
0: Okay, I get the bull case for service mesh. It's kind of out of the core of my code base. It's going to give me some benefits. It's a nice abstraction layer away from the critical path of stuff that I'm actually manipulating. But The bare case is that it adds complexity to my infrastructure. I'm going to be spending time implementing this thing that I could be spending writing business logic. Mm -hmm. Are there any other negative sides to it? What are the biggest critiques of this abstraction?
1: Yeah, so definitely it adds complexity to your infrastructure. As, As much as we try and minimize it, it's not zero. It adds latency to everything. Right now, every call is not just going from A to B. It's going through two proxy hops, two user space proxy hops, each of which is introducing latency. And, you know, it's a whole new concept for people to think about. So there's definitely a cost that you're paying. Like with any layer of abstraction, you pay a computational cost to do this, and you pay a operational cost. We try and minimize both of those in, in Linkerd as much as we can. But the benefit that you're getting, right, the benefit that you're getting is really A benefit that the platform team gets more than the developer team which is the things that they are fundamentally responsible for like what is the performance of the application as a whole which services are healthy and which ones are unhealthy regardless of who wrote them or what framework they used or how they were deployed all of that the ownership of of those solutions gets placed in the hands of the platform team and so you know in in service mesh.io one of the statements i make which i really like is that the service mesh is less of a solution to a technical problem as it is a solution to a socio-technical problem i like to see things through the lens of, of human beings which you know is also why dive is so human focused i guess but it is a solution for the platform engineers that gives them things that they c- could have in other ways right you could ask the developers to do all this stuff but you give it to them in a way that decouples them from that dependency
0: This episode of Software Engineering Daily is sponsored by Datadog. Datadog integrates seamlessly with more than 200 technologies, including Kubernetes and Docker, so you can monitor your entire container cluster in one place. Datadog's new live container view provides insights into your container's health, resource consumption, and deployment in real time. Filter to a specific Docker image or drill down by Kubernetes service to get fine-grained visibility into your container infrastructure. Start monitoring your container workload today with a 14-day free trial, and Datadog will send you a free t-shirt. Go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash datadog to try it out. That's softwareengineeringdaily.com slash datadog to try it out and get a free t-shirt. Thank you, Datadog. Okay, so we have talked about Service Mesh at length in other episodes, and you've revisited this with your Service Mesh Manifesto. Mesh Festo. Mesh Festo. Before we go into Dive and start talking about that product, is there anything else you want to talk about, like ground floor Service Mesh ideas, before we get into Dive?
1: Well, I still remember the the first question you asked me in that you know the previous time that we met, which was in Barcelona, and I was super jet lagged, and I was like not really prepared for this question, but you you, you, like threw it at me, and I had to stumble my way through it. Was you know is the service mesh a winner takes all market? And the answer that I gave, which I actually do believe, so luckily I managed to stumble to the (laughs) to the right place, is that it's actually not. It's not a winner takes all market, and I think you know as much as I would like to say that Linkerd is going to you know dominate the universe. I think the reality is there's going to be multiple service mesh implementations that are out there and they're going to have specific, you know, benefits and drawbacks. And I think that's okay. I think that's fine. I think the service mesh concept is really valuable. And I think it's important for there to be implementations like Linkerd out there that are, you know, lightning fast and really easy to install. And, you know, we need to be able to say, oh, you want to try service mesh here? It'll take you 30 seconds to install Linkerd. But Linkerd doesn't have to be the be-all, end-all of, of all service meshes. And I think it would be bad for Linkerd for us to try and do that anyways. So I think that's a little surprising to people who are coming from the Kubernetes community, where they've seen Kubernetes take over the universe. And they're like, OK, clearly this is a war. And only one will, you know, only one will survive. There
0: were a lot of casualties in that war.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there were. It was bloody. Yeah. Reporting from the front lines, it was bloody. So I don't think it's going to be that way for the service mesh. And I think that's fine. OK.
0: Dive. You instrumented your infrastructure with a service mesh, you got your proxy set up, you got your control plane, you got mutual TLS, you're cruising along. What do you want next?
1: Yeah. So this, you know, once again, it's like replaying the experience that we had at Twitter, which was once we had gotten that stuff working, and Twitter didn't have a service mesh as we know it, but it had kind of an equivalent with with Finagle the big challenge that we had was we had done all this work to decouple the engineering teams so that they didn't have to synchronize. You know, we didn't have to have like deploy Tuesdays where everyone got into the campfire room and we all tried to merge to the branches into the monolith, but there were still these synchronization points that we needed that we didn't really have a mechanism for doing right. Because services have relationships, right? Well, I'm a caller, you're a callee, you know, and so you doing something on your team to your service actually will have an effect on me, depending on the nature of that relationship. And we didn't really have mechanisms for dealing with that. So a lot of what you did as a Twitter engineer was you interacted with other engineers in kind of this service-centric manner, where you were saying, okay, so you're a client of mine, you know, how much traffic are you going to send me and when are you going to deploy and actually please don't do that right now because my service is, is dying so can you just hold off on making changes you know because we're trying to do this and I don't even know who's sending traffic to my service right now like I don't even know that where's this traffic coming from suddenly we have 3x traffic to our service like I have to send an email to you know everyone in engineering and be like hey did someone change something recently all of those experiences they're not technology problems right they're problems of how are the humans in this process, communicating with each other. And we didn't really have a good solution to that. We had kind of sketches of of solutions. So by the time we had gotten to solve these computer problems, we were left in the, I guess, scarier realm of, well, now we've got the human problems left. And we all wanted the same thing, right? We all had the same goal, which is we wanted to ship features for Twitter and make it better and like iterate in a way that was fast. But we found ourselves stumbling because of these communication issues that didn't have great solutions. So Dive, you showed me a demo
0: of it, is a really nice looking management panel that allows for setting of SLOs, service level objectives. It provides a event history of all the changes that have occurred to your services. It does a bunch of other stuff that I want to know about. But Why do I want another management panel? Don't I have a million management panels and like communication tools already? Why do I want another tool?
1: Yeah. So calling it a management panel makes it sound horrible. (laughs) I would never call it that. (laughs) I'm sorry. I call it Facebook for services. Facebook for microservices. Doesn't that sound exciting? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's something I want to use. It's like Uber for HTTP calls. Mm -hmm. That sounds exciting. Well, I don't call it that. (laughs) So the reason why yeah, yeah no one wants to look at another thing for sure but what we've noticed is that every company that starts adopting microservices ends up building something like this in house it is a ui really panel for shocking. managing their services it's less about like managing my services and it's more about what even what services are even out there like i don't even know what's running in my infrastructure right now so even the very act of like giving you a list of services that are running and where they're running, you know, and what the where you know who who owns this like what team is what team owns this thing and and when was the last time it was deployed and what was that code even the act of like collating that information doesn't happen at a lot of companies you'll have you'll end up with companies that have like wiki pages that are always out of date you know or someone uh, you know someone came around and like made a spreadsheet once and like by the time they finished compiling the spreadsheet it was like totally out of date. So the thing that we've done and the thing that is made possible, that has made Dive possible is Kubernetes and the service mesh. Now that those things are in place, we actually can determine the majority of this stuff fully automatically. We can inspect Kubernetes, we can inspect the relationship between the deployments in Kubernetes, we can inspect the health of each of these endpoints, and we can compile that. And what Dive does fundamentally, it sounds a little weird, but it's translating all of that, like, you know, kind of computer stuff into social constructs because a service when you're running microservices a a service is fundamentally a i guess i'll call an organizational construct right it's a bunch of deployments you know on various kubernetes clusters sure but it's also a code repo right it's a team who owns this ideally often you have services that are unowned and it's a readme and it's a runbook and it's some operational knowledge all that stuff just giving you a facebook page for that thing, I'm going to keep calling this Facebook until the legal department shuts me down. Just giving you what not Twitter. <laughs> like, well, yeah, I guess I, I, can call I guess us.
0: Twitter for microservices is not that doesn't have good good recollections for Seems you. Seems a for- little
1: incestuous, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But just giving you like a homepage for a service that someone else in the company can look at, you know, and that's why it's extremely valuable. And that's why SLOs are such a natural part of this because, you know, I don't just want this to be, well, here's, here's can the you Explain reason what SLO is. Yeah. So SLO is a service level objective and there's a whole lot of, you know, SRE theory around this, but basically what it allows you to do is to express the reliability expectation of the service. Like what does it mean for this service to be healthy and what does it mean for it not to be healthy? Right. And, you know, cause it's different for different services, right? In some cases, you may have like a, a service. That you, you know, if it's up, that's great. But if it goes down, it's not like a three-alarm emergency you know it's a, an autocomplete thing yeah we should fix it but it, you know no one's going to suffer you know we're not going to drop revenue or no one's going to die if we don't have autocomplete but there are other services services that are like oh this is the database and like if this thing goes down everything goes down and so you have different reliability expectations so an SLO is a basically a way of formalizing that and say and saying hey this is what you can expect from this service right so it's it's a communications mechanism and there's cool things you can do with SLOs. There's this concept of error budgets, which give you a way of balancing kind of feature velocity versus reliability and having a way of pushing back and saying, no, we can't deploy the features right now because you know we're out of our, our error budget. But fundamentally, they are a communication mechanism for saying, "Here's here's the expectations of reliability for this service.
0: The thing that I think is cool about this product is I think when the service mesh... Wars were starting to heat up, or people were starting to think about
1: the service mesh. We should call them something else. Struggles,
0: struggles. Yeah, okay, fine, (laughs) fine. All right, enough, enough of the the wartime co service mesh co evolution markets. Sure, service mesh. Yeah, (laughs) category. As soon as the service mesh category was developing, I think people had an intuitive understanding that this was a high value software category because this is something that you were putting, you were attaching to all of your services. So stretching across your entire infrastructure. So clearly there was some value there. I think even you intuitively knew that there was going to be some value there, but you didn't really know what is the, the value? What are you going to gain from instrumenting all your services? Obviously, you know, you have this like day one experience of, you know, circuit breaking and telemetry and, you know, TLS, whatever. But just the fact that you now would have this piece of infrastructure that's sitting everywhere across all your services, you knew there was some value there. And this is kind of the first foray into what else can we do now that all of our infrastructure is instrumented with this uniform layer yeah
1: yeah that's right that's right and i gave this incredibly inspirational talk at service meshcon on monday was that your own conference no <laughs> it wasn't my own conference but you know we were there with a good number of good amount of Linkerd content but you know the the talk that i gave was basically does the service mesh matter right and and my assertion was that it matters. Yes, but it matters in the same way that plumbing matters, right? was, you know, so plumbing is great. It allows us to build cities and to live together. And, you know, in in a way that's hygienic and like people aren't getting sick all the time. And, you know, once you have that, then there's all sorts of great economic and cultural benefits from living in cities. But, you know, the pipes and the tubes or whatever, like, that's not the important part. That's cool to, like, a very small audience of people who really end up pipes and tubes, but plumbing is important not because of what it is, but because of what it enables. And I think it's exactly the same for the service mesh, which is, you know... Look, I get caught up in the details and I'm like, oh, look, we've got exponentially weighted moving average, like load balancing algorithms and whatever. But like that stuff doesn't really matter. That's the tubes and the, and the plumbing. What is interesting to me and what I think is the real value of the service mesh is not what it is or how it works, but what it unlocks. And that's what's so exciting to me about Dive is now that we have Kubernetes and the service mesh, and obviously there's like, you know, we're living in the, the very bleeding edge of the software adoption cycle right. here. So it's not like we have these things in kind of any global sense. But now that those are things that are there and are starting to see adoption, what I'm most excited about, and this has kind of been the mission for Buoyant the entire time, is what does this unlock and how do we start solving the problems that I actually care the most about, which are the problems that human beings have when they're trying to accomplish some kind of shared purpose together. I'm a weirdo in the infrastructure world and in that what I care about is the people aspect. Right? So this is this feels very natural to me, but I think it seems a little strange if you're coming at it from like the, you know, what's the ideal load balancing algorithm perspective. Well,
0: if you ask a lot of the microservices theorists in the world, they'll tell you that microservices is a answer to a human problem. Yeah. Like yeah. you 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 break up the thing into microservices because you need that for managing the a number of people you have, allocating the number of people you have to the right number of services.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's right. And you get things like Conway's Law, which are explicitly relating, you know, software composition and organizational composition. So, you know, I'm not the only one in the world who understands this. It's just the part of it that I think is really, really interesting.
0: As a side note, is there any risk that service mesh is one of these things that, we're going down a blind alley as an entire industry, like chatbots, like, you know, we all got really hyped (laughs) about chatbots. And then it turned out like, no, chatbots were just a Silicon Valley fever dream. No, the world is not really going to adopt chatbots. I mean, there are are adopting chatbots, but it's happening much slower. Like, what if service mesh happens much slower? And then there's some other like, pivotal change to the infrastructure world that makes service mesh look like a total foray or a blind alley? Is there any risk to this kind of thing happening?
1: I don't think so. I don't think so. I think that's a great question to ask ourselves at any point in time. You know, because as you point out, like we do as an industry, go down these blind spots, especially when there's the fuel of you know the like the cheap calories of VC funding. Yes. Which you know, I say that having eaten a little cheap. Cal- ca- yes, having <laughs> cheap feasted calories. heavily on those cheap <laughs> calories, and actually. Uh, you know, arguably that's great for us because we totally. can explore those things oh, really absolutely. quickly and then be like, all right, that didn't work out. Right, And everyone kind of knows the deal, yeah. what you're getting into. Oh, no yeah. one expects this to be like <laughs> success guaranteed, you know, except for, you know, Buoyant and Linkerd where success is guaranteed. <laughs> or, your, or your money back. Oh no, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> uh, for Linkerd maybe. But so the, the reason why I don't think that's the case for the service mesh is it, it's actually the same reason that you know, I think it's not the case for container orchestrators and and for all that stuff, which is I think it's fundamentally tied to what are the demands that we are placing on our software right and I think those demands are changing right so ten twenty years ten years ago, let's say it was okay for software to be down for twenty four hours for maintenance right maybe it was fifteen years ago. I don't know, and you know things weren't moving that fast, and the internet was only so big there weren't that many people on it relative to now. All of those factors are changing, right? Today, in the modern world, the internet is not getting any smaller; it's getting a lot bigger, a lot faster. The software is not allowed to be down; it needs to be up twenty-four-seven, and the pace of feature iteration is really, really fast. And all of those demands have had some pretty transformative results in the industry, and that's part of, I believe, why even like moving onto the cloud, right, is fundamentally, I think, due to those demands. And once you're in that world, it turns out that the way you're architecting software has to be pretty different. And you, that's why you end up with things like microservices. Right? And then once you're in that world, well, okay, all the deploy and, and, and kind of you know operational components start getting really complicated. And therefore, therefore you have containers and container orchestrators. Like, I think it's all tied to these fundamental demands that we're placing, changes in the demands that we're placing on our software. And I think the service mesh is in service of those demands. So, by that metric, I don't think it's a mistake. And certainly what we've seen with Linkerd, and even what we saw with like the, prototype, you know, the prototype forms of the service mesh at companies like Twitter and, and Facebook and Google early on, is that it provides real value. Like, it is, it's actually making people's lives easier, and it's allowing them to do stuff in a way that they couldn't do before.
0: Now, it doesn't surprise me that a service mesh can provide value at a company like Twitter or Facebook or Google or Uber. These companies have fleets of really good engineers. They have central platform teams. And I know that insurance companies and banks have their own platform teams these days. And I know John Deere tractor probably has a platform team as well. And all these these companies that have a lot of money to spend that are becoming software companies, they all are developing this platform based strategy where they they have they have platform teams. They have some some determined strategy for adopting new technology and propagating that technology through the organization. But I do wonder is there a difference in the quality of platform engineering between Twitter and an insurance company? Like, is the insurance company, I know they can set up something called a platform team. Do they actually have the wherewithal and the technical skill to get a service mesh and a Kubernetes installation deployed such that it's actually providing them value?
1: I think the answer is... Probably yes. I think this is a really important question. And my co-founder Oliver Gold hates the term democratization, but I'm going to use it with apologies to him. I think a lot of what these technologies do or can do is democratize access to the ability to write software that's reliable and secure. And I think that's really important because, you know, if, if we don't have that, then only the companies that have access to really, really good software engineering talent, which are going to be, you know, the Facebooks of the world, not the John Deers of the world. Well, sorry, I don't know anyone John Deere, so not the... You know who I don't I, either by the way yeah. I would love to do a show that's probably did. awesome
0: I've heard they're, they're crushing it you I know mean, who
1: I hate though who I'm totally going to shit talk oh. is Equifax
0: there you go yeah okay <laughs> Equifax we so. need to give better software we need yeah. do we really want to democratize we just want Equifax to die at this point right
1: well so what I would like to do is make it so that even companies like Equifax can build software reliably and securely right so that they stop having so those vindictive. incidents no I would like to make things better for them and I think that Kubernetes and Linkerd can play a role in that right so one of the things
0: it's funny because literally the last interview I made an Apache Struts joke okay <laughs> which is you know the downfall of Equifax
1: yeah. oh was it Apache Struts
0: yeah I, I think so yeah
1: I heard it was because they didn't have mutual TLS in between their services
0: Well, I thought it was, okay, maybe, it might have been. No, no, it's definitely
1: not that. (laughs) But, but, you know, one of the things that we, (laughs) (laughs) so, but, you know, like, I think security is a great example of this. Having a secure system is really, really hard, right? But there are things you can do to make it easier. So, for example, with Linkerd, we have, you know, we do mutual TLS between all services, Right, which is great. So now you get encryption and you get, you know, authentication of the identity of the service and so on. And we actually turn it on by default. So zero config, on by default, mutual TLS. And part of the reason why we falling down the path. Yeah, exactly. Is you know to the extent that security is complicated or hard, you have to configure some stuff, it's not going to be used. But if we have the opportunity to do that, we can make Linkerd provide, as much as it can, can provide security by default. There's a lot more to a security story than just adding a service mesh and just adding mutual TLS, of course. But the part that we can control, I think it's really important for us to make that basically zero work. Right. Did we talk about this last time? I forget because I've told the story to many people. But when I w- when I'm using my web browser and I'm like surfing cat pictures on Reddit or whatever, I get the green lock icon. Yeah. Right? I have got a secure right, connection right, right. to Reddit and I've, I've validated yes. that it's Reddit and like all that stuff just for my cat pictures. So, and I don't have to do any work to get that. Right? right? I've done literally zero work to do that other than type in reddit.com. Yeah. It should be the same way for my services. Why should my services be any different, right? They're like passing credit card numbers around or sure. like health data. Sure. So having that security by default, I think it's, you know, it, it's not just like cool to talk about. I think it's really important because there are going to be companies of the future, the Equifaxes of the future that are going to be built that aren't necessarily going to have access to the top tier, you know, very expensive talent that companies like Facebook and, and Twitter have. But it's important for them to be able to build secure and reliable software because if they don't, we're all going to suffer. Right. The thing that blew my mind about Equifax was that, you know, like the information of my, you know, of my, of my wife and my friends was leaked. And totally. they didn't even have a choice. They weren't even Equifax customers. It's just like, oh, it's a giant right. leak. Right. So we've got to we've got to do what we can to prevent that. And we've got to be able to, and to use that word again, democratize as much as we can, reliability and, and security in software. Otherwise, we're going to all end up in a world that's like just more Equifaxes.
0: As a programmer, you think in objects. With MongoDB, so does your database. MongoDB is the most popular document-based database built for modern application developers and the cloud era. Millions of developers use MongoDB to power the world's most innovative products and services, from cryptocurrency to online gaming, IoT, and more. Try MongoDB today with Atlas, the global cloud database service that runs on AWS, Azure, and Google Cloud. Configure, deploy, and connect to your database in just a few minutes. Check it out at mongodb.com/atlas. That's mongodb.com/atlas. Thank you to MongoDB for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. The TLS example, it is worth repeatedly bringing up because as I have talked to the other service mesh people, what they repeatedly say is, yes, enterprises do want a service mesh. Yes, they are excited about all the things, the routing and the telemetry and the A-B testing and the green-blue deployments and whatever. But what they really want the most is TLS and The way to get that is, well, one way to get it is through a service mesh. And I think the brightest vision of what that looks like from where we stand today is you also have some kind of way of, I mean, if you look at the Spiffy and the Spire projects, you have some way of of giving application identities to your different services so that the security operator can hand out credentials, can hand out out security credentials to those different applications and understand the security posture of the organization through the service mesh management plane. Is that one of the things that Dive is going to do, like deal with this security layer?
1: Probably not. Probably not. Dive is really focused on the problems of people and and process. So I think there's interesting security stuff we can do with Dive, but they're probably not going to be in the realm of well, I need to tie together service identity across all these different you know types of infrastructure that we have because we've accumulated these like strata of of technologies over time. To me, that's a problem that's best solved by open source. It's best solved by you know things that are running in your cluster. It doesn't seem like a Dive thing to me.
0: Hmm. Do you have to do anything fancy to... So, like, I talked to the Tetrate people mm-hmm. recently, and this is one thing they said they're, they're really focused on, is building infrastructure to allow the manage of, management of this TLS credentialing stuff. Like, do you want some kind of management plan? Or do you have a... There's a Linkerd management plan also. Like, is that some place where you can insert the security management policy stuff?
1: Yes, yeah, yeah. So Linkerd has a control plane, you know, and control plane has a dashboard and, and so on and so forth. And that's like all built into, you know, that all runs on your cluster, a little namespace. And that's potentially a place where you would start configuring, you know, how identity, how service identity is is provisioned for all your services. Yeah, so that that is certainly something that can happen in an open source land and cer- certainly something that, so Linkerd today, you know, basically what we do is the control plane ships with a little certificate authority and that certificate authority issues certs to each of the data plane proxies and rotates them every n hours and ties them to kubernetes service accounts and you know we can we can make that work with spiffy it's on the roadmap just haven't gotten to it quite yet and to me yeah all that stuff is important and it needs to be managed i would rather have that happen in open source land then have it be a commercial well, product. What else but- do you
0: need beyond what you just described? Beyond the automatic certificate rolling and yeah. issuance what do you actually want? why do you need? Do you need a
1: manual thing for... So the the story is simple in, in the Kubernetes world because you can just kind of do this all automatically. What gets a little more complicated is when you want to have identity outside of a single Kubernetes cluster, and especially identity where you have for code that you have running on VMs or on Mesos or you know in, in kind of other environments. And that identity needs to be shared across all those things. And that's where projects like Spiffy come into play. Yeah. So we've taken, you know, we've done the very easy part with Linkerd, which is if you're running on Kubernetes, we will give you everything you need for that Kubernetes cluster for free on by default. But the moment that you extend beyond that cluster, then life gets a lot more complicated.
0: And what does application identity actually mean in that context?
1: So in this context, you know, it's, it's distinct from something like user identity. So it's not like, oh, Jeff is doing this particular thing. This is the Foo service, and I'm the Bar service. And both sides know that you know you are Foo and I am Bar. And therefore, you know, I can trust that you're allowed to call me. Or maybe you're not allowed to call me. You know, there's like the whole policy aspect in there, Mm. too. Right. Or, you know, Foo has several different versions, and you're actually the Foo from staging. But I'm the bar from production, so maybe that's allowed, or maybe it's not. Ah. Yeah.
0: Okay. And this would be... This is not hard to do in the all-Kubernetes world. It's difficult to do in a world where you've got a Mesos cluster and a VMware thing and a, and a bare metal box with you know no Kubernetes or V or VMs or anything, uh, you've got a heterogeneous infrastructure and you're trying to have this kind of policy management where you don't want staging talking to production, for example. Like you would not be, but but Linkerd, you've kind of focused on the Kubernetes side of the market anyway, so it almost doesn't make sense for you to work on a application identity policy management system quite yet,
1: I guess. Well, I would very much like to leave that all to Spiffy and to just work with Spiffy. Mm-hmm. Right. Part part of our part of the Linkerd philosophy is to work with existing projects, which is right. like why we don't have ingress, because there's already a hundred Kubernetes Ingress projects, each of which are good in different ways. So for something like that, or, you know, even policy talking about how do you define this policy? There's projects like OPA out there that have, you know, basically have solutions for that. Open policy. Right. Yep. Yep. So I don't want to invent any of that in in Linkerd. I want Linkerd to live alongside those projects. And and, in my mind, it's kind of like following the the Kubernetes philosophy of of having these building blocks.
0: Okay. We've been talking about what Dive is not. Let's talk about what Dive (laughs) is. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So you know, I think policy is, is an interesting example to talk about because Dive does have a policy component, but it's policy in terms of these service constructs and in terms of the the teams and, and the humans who operate that. So the example that I like to give is, you know, let's say that you are a service owner, right, and you're deploying. You want to roll out a new version of code to your service, right? That's all. Part of a day's work. There's teams that are doing 30 deploys a day, but your service is actually has a client that's out of SLO, right? So you have a. There's another team that owns another service, and right now their service is out of SLO, which means like they're struggling to get things back up. You doing a deploy right now introduces risk into the system, and so you might not actually want to do that. So what Dive can do is allow you to define policies that say things like hey if you have a client that's out of slo then before you're allowed to deploy you need to get approval from some team member there or something like that you know you can imagine variants of this and in that case dive can actually send a little slack notification or or an email to an owner of that upstream service and say hey you know this dependency of yours wants to wants to deploy are you cool with that yes or no And that'll at least spark a conversation. That's the kind of policy you can start capturing that involves, you know, it's not policy of like, you know, is Foo allowed to talk to Bar? It's more along the lines of, hey, this change is happening and these people are potentially going to be affected. And do you want to get an explicit buy-in from them or not? Right? Maybe that's approval. Maybe it's just notification. I don't know. These are all organizational things. But those are the kinds of synchronization points that have to happen between engineers when they're operating and, and building these services. And what are
0: they doing today? They're just sending a Slack message? Yeah,
1: yeah, Or like right. not even right.
0: notifying or... Yeah,
1: so a lot of the time, you know, they're just not doing it and then things break and, you know, you get yelled at afterwards and you have a postmortem. Or they, you know, they have internal tools that they've built, you but know.
0: doesn't But doesn't this kind of thing already take place... Through GitHub, Like, if I'm going to make a change that is going to affect something, isn't that usually centered around GitHub?
1: So GitHub does have this notion of, like, code owners and things like that, where it's like, hey, if you're making a, a code change to the service, you need to get, you know, N code reviews before it can be merged in. But that's really a code-centric thing, right? That's more about what code is allowed into the service, and it's less about, can I deploy this code to this environment, given all these runtime dependencies. Right? That information is not captured in, in GitHub. In fact, it's not even really captured anywhere on the run- service mesh.
0: Define what a runtime dependency is.
1: So in this sense, I mean, foo is calling bar. Right? That's often not captured in the code. It might be captured, or if it is, it's captured on foo's side and not on bar's side. But it turns out that's a really important... Part of the runtime behavior of the system is this runtime relationship. So even capturing that is difficult. And we had all these incidents at at Twitter that were due to the fact that someone introduced a new dependency and no one told the team (laughs) that that was going to happen or that, you know, things went awry because that that relationship wasn't wasn't not. Ever defined in the code, you could go around and write it in a spreadsheet or something, but that spreadsheet would be out of date as soon as someone changed something. The runtime relationship between services is a critical part of the application's behavior, but it's not formalized anywhere, right? It's not captured anywhere.
0: This is the service dependency chain. So like A depends on B, depends on C, depends on D.
1: Yep, yep. And of course that dependency is not just a binary thing, right? This is very complex. Here are the calls that I'm making. Here's the volume that you're going to expect. Maybe you have rate limits on your side. I've got some retry policy on my side. You know, it's not just I talk to Jeff. It's like Jeff and I are having a a conversation, you know, about this topic on this this particular basis and, and so on. And if you look at very sophisticated organizations, you know, they eventually get to the point where you can't even introduce a relationship without kind of formalizing that contract. You know, so people, this is a problem, you know, and and people solve it through these homegrown tools, which is fine. But to me, that's a sign that, you know, dive has a, there's a market.
0: Do you have any specific examples? Like does Netflix have one of these things? Google has one of these things. Facebook has one of these things where it's like the mappings of the runtime service relationships.
1: There are some examples, but none that I think I'm allowed to talk about okay, publicly. Fair enough. fair enough. You can certainly see...
0: This is somebody's infrastructure for everyone.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Enough said. Yeah.
0: I mean, I look at it, I'm like, this looks like something that has been built at one of these gigantic right. organizations. Yeah. This looks like something that people could use.
1: Yeah. These problems definitely exist. Right. And people are trying to solve them. Yeah.
0: As we wrap up a little bit about, like, business going to market stuff. So, the different service meshes all have a different market position. So, I look at App Mesh from AWS. Obviously, it's AWS. So, like, they don't even need to have an open source thing. They're just like, here's our thing. It's proprietary. You're going to take it. You're going to like it. You're going to use it. (laughs) You know, Kong has their north-south traffic manager that they can upsell into an east-west traffic manager. HashiCorp has a suite of products that have a great reputation, and they can cross-sell into console service mesh. These are all nice little entry points for all of these quote-unquote service mesh products. How does your entry point compare? Because I assume there are plenty of organizations that have one of these other products that you're talking to and you're kind of competing for the same land grab. Does, does that ever come up?
1: I think that's related to what we talked about a little bit earlier around the service mesh, not having a, a single, not a winner t- takes all kind mm-hmm. of space. For me, what's important is not like I said, not linkerd you know, dominating the universe, although that would be nice. What's important is that the service mesh model as a as a platform that other tooling can be built on top of takes off and is like a viable thing. And that's what I think, uh, you know, we're starting to see. So regardless of the actual implementations of these projects, there being a service mesh there, you know, just like there being a container orchestrator there that has an API that we can talk to that we can use to understand what's actually happening on that cluster that's the important part for buoyant and that's kind of what everything all of our go to market is is predicated on and in fact if you look at the mission statement of buoyant it doesn't say anything about linkerd it doesn't say anything about the service mesh at all right it's all about hey you know first of all people are the way that software is being built is changing and also, we need to provide mechanisms for the world to run software in a way that's reliable and secure, because if we don't, then we're going to end up in a world that you know we don't like. So that's been the mission. The service mesh is an implementation detail by that view. And that's why things like Dive, I think, are very much in line with that vision, where it almost doesn't matter. You know, the fact that there's Kubernetes and the fact that there's Linkerd under the hood, well, that's great, but those are still implementation details. The real challenge that we want to solve and the real thing that we have to solve is how does a group of human beings, a group of engineers, get together and accomplish a shared purpose? That's fundamentally a business problem. Maybe it's more general than that, but at least in this context, it's a business problem. And that's what I want to solve, and that's what I think we can solve with Dive.
0: Last question. So let's say there's somebody in the audience who is building a infrastructure product for developers. What are the most crucial lessons that you've learned about building infrastructure software, infrastructure companies over the last three, four years?
1: Yeah. Oh, man. Where to begin? We've learned so many lessons. (laughs) I think the first is you need to have a clear idea of who your adopter is, right? Is it an SRE? Is it a developer? Is it someone who's writing business logic or is it someone who's building the platform? For us, it's actually the platform owners and they have a particular relationship with the developers, but they're not actually building the the business logic. So having a really crisp idea of who they are and what they care about. I think the next lesson that that we learned is not getting too caught up in the technology and doing everything you can to understand what are the Actual problems that someone has to solve. Because the reality is, there are a large set of problems that are kind of secondary. They're like nice to haves, right? There are things that, like, yes, you know, I'd like to have cloud portability. You know, sounds good, right? (laughs) Yeah, of course you want that, right? But there's also a set of problems that are like, if I don't solve this right now, like I'm literally not going to have a job tomorrow. You need to understand, you need to find those problems and you need to solve those in as and as immediate in a direct way as possible. That's a big one for us. And then the, the third one maybe is that, you know, at least in the open source world, it's almost like the consumer world in the sense that you are vying for people's attention, right? There's a lot of stuff out there and people have a limited amount of time in the day and a limited amount of, to give about some new thing that they've never heard of, right? So you need to make sure that when they look at your website, when they try the thing, whatever, if they're going to give you 30 seconds, they need to get to like a wow in 30 seconds. It needs to be clear to them that it's worth spending more time on there. And so, We've invested heavily. So we learned this lesson in a lot of ways, you know, in the transition from, from Linkerd 1.x to, to 2.x, where 1.x was like, here's a giant YAML file, you know, to configure every possible option for Finagle, so, you know, go figure it out. Or, and 2.x, by contrast, has an onboarding experience that we've really focused really hard on. You know, and we try and make it so that you can install service mesh on Kubernetes in like 60 seconds and get a dashboard that shows you a bunch of cool stuff that you didn't have before. And that kind of thing is really important from the product perspective because your product is what's communicating You know, everything else. I mean, your product has to communicate itself. To the user it's a those first 30 60 seconds five minutes whatever it is are really crucial for that and that's not natural for for engineers right you you think about the grand vision you think about the you know once we have this deployed everywhere imagine all these cool things that we can do but you're not going to get to that point unless you have the first 30 60 you know 300 seconds really nailed down so those are all lessons learned the hard way <laughs> and hopefully incorporated uh, mostly into into Linkerty at this point
0: cool Thanks, William. I'll see you at the next QCon.
1: Sounds good. If Thank not before, you. then yeah, sounds great. Thanks, okay. Jeff.
0: Great. DigitalOcean is a simple, developer-friendly cloud platform. DigitalOcean is optimized to make managing and scaling applications easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options integrated firewalls, load balancers, and more. With predictable pricing and flexible configurations and world-class customer support, you'll get access to all the infrastructure services you need to grow. And DigitalOcean is simple. If you don't need the complexity of the complex cloud providers, try out DigitalOcean with their simple interface and their great customer support Plus, they've got 2,000-plus tutorials to help you stay up-to-date with the latest open-source software and languages and frameworks. You can get started on DigitalOcean for free at do.co.se daily. One thing that makes DigitalOcean special is they're really interested in long-term developer productivity. And I remember one particular example of this when I found a tutorial on DigitalOcean about how to get started on a different cloud provider and I thought that really stood for a sense of confidence and an attention to just getting developers off the ground faster and they've continued to do that with DigitalOcean today. All their services are easy to use and have simple interfaces. Try it out at do.co.se daily. That's the letter D, the letter O, dot the letter C, the letter O, slash SEDaily. And you will get started for free with some free credits. Thanks to DigitalOcean for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily.